Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all the latest mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to cure yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness without the hype and distortion of other media sources. With the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to tonight's show. This is the November 19th 2014 edition of Psychiatry Today. Again, the show is pre-recorded, and so therefore, if uh, there are some things that happened at the beginning of this week that you thought, wow, how come we didn't talk about that? Well, it's because it's pre-recorded, and I'll get to it next week. But first up on tonight's show, while so many states had marijuana-related legislation on the ballot this past election day, I know it is not politically correct to talk about how wrong and dangerous I think this is, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, I am a psychiatrist. My entire profession is devoted to the health of the brain, and you know the way I feel about it is if I hear or see of things going on that are going to do damage to this incredibly complex and wonderful and vital organ, then I am going to say something about it. Uh, So, but don't take my word for it that marijuana is bad for your brain. Uh, Here is some research done at a highly specialized center, the uh, Center for Brain Health at the University of Texas at Dallas. The effects of chronic marijuana use on the brain may depend on the age of first use and the duration of use. Now, this paper was published on November the 10th, right, uh, right after Election Day, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Researchers, for the first time, comprehensively describe existing abnormalities in brain function and structure of long-term marijuana users with multiple magnetic resonance imaging techniques. Findings show chronic marijuana users, meaning long-term repetitive users, have smaller brain volume in an area of the brain called the orbitofrontal cortex, or OFC for short. This is a part of the brain commonly associated with addiction, and also it shows increased brain connectivity. Now you may think, wow, increased brain connectivity, that sounds like a good thing. Not necessarily, and we'll get to that later. I also acknowledge that the study is demonstrating these problems in chronic marijuana users. And perhaps this data from this research doesn't apply 
to people who are just going to be your occasional casual user and therefore someone might level the charge all right well you're talking about this but it doesn't apply to most people who use it it's somewhat alarmist there may be a point there but the fact that marijuana laws are being relaxed in different areas across the country uh, means that there may be some people who will start out as casual users and end up being chronic, persistent, frequent, and long-term users. And they're definitely going to suffer some long-term brain damage if they do. Now, the researchers note they've seen a steady increase in the incidence of marijuana use since 2007. But research on its long-term effects remains scarce despite the changes in legislation surrounding marijuana and the continuing conversation surrounding what is certainly a very relevant public health topic. The research team studied 48 adult marijuana users and 62 gender and age-matched non-users to compare them to, accounting for potential biases such as gender, age, and ethnicity. And I'll be the first to admit 48 is a small sample size. Now, the authors also controlled for tobacco and alcohol use. You know, obviously these are other mind-altering chemicals, even though they're legal and potentially could cause changes in the brain if someone were to use them for long periods of time. On average, the marijuana users who participated in this study consumed the drug three times per day. Again, admittedly much more than the average casual user. Cognitive tests show that chronic marijuana users had lower IQ compared to age and gender-matched controls, but the differences do not seem to be related to the brain abnormalities, as no direct correlation can be drawn between these IQ deficits and the OFC volume decrease. What's unique about this work is that it combines three different MRI techniques to evaluate different brain characteristics. The structural connectivity or wiring of the brain starts degrading with prolonged marijuana use. Tests reveal that earlier onset of regular marijuana use induces greater structural and functional connectivity. Greatest increases in connectivity appear as an individual begins using marijuana. Findings show severity of use is directly correlated to greater connectivity. Although increased structural wiring declines after six to eight years of continued chronic use, marijuana users continue to display more intense connectivity than non sorry than healthy non-users, which may explain why chronic long-term users 
seem to be doing just fine despite smaller OFC volumes. The study offers a preliminary indication that gray matter, this is the cells, uh, the cell bodies of brain cells in the OFC may be more vulnerable than the white matter or the, <clears throat> the uh, extending pieces of the brain cell that can uh, carry electrical messages uh, down a brain cell path. Uh, they're sensitive to the effects of THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, the main psychoactive ingredient in the cannabis plant. The study provides evidence that chronic marijuana use initiates a complex process that allows brain cells to adapt and compensate for smaller gray matter volume, but further studies are needed to determine whether these changes revert back to normal after someone discontinues marijuana use, whether similar effects are present in occasional marijuana users versus chronic users, and whether these effects are indeed a direct result of marijuana use or a predisposing factor. Now, I agree the issue the researchers are looking at may be somewhat complex, but the basic bottom line is you're seeing changes in the brain, a decrease in gray matter, an increase in white matter, which is a way for the cells to try to compensate, and a decrease in volume in the orbitofrontal cortex. Uh, now, this is a result of chronic marijuana use. It is not appropriate for anyone to claim that marijuana is safe, that it does not do damage to the brain. It definitely does. Uh, but as for the casual, infrequent user, you know, this is what we know happens to someone who uses it regularly and frequently, three times a day, every day, for long periods of time. Uh, I don't know that we have enough information on what happens to someone who uses it much less frequently and in lesser amounts. But nonetheless, it's clear that with the damage done by frequent long-term use, it should give anyone pause uh, to, to use it no matter how little, no matter how frequently or, or not. And the other point is like any other addictive substance, whether it's the legal ones like tobacco and alcohol or illegal ones like marijuana, cocaine, and others, no one can predict who will be able to stay an infrequent casual user and who will become addicted. Uh, those who become addicted will certainly be using it in greater amounts at greater frequency and therefore uh, be at risk for this type of brain damage. Uh, and I don't mind saying, no matter how politically incorrect it is, that while I'm <clears throat> in favor of compassionate use of medical marijuana for certain narrow purposes, and that does not include how they have clinics set up in California where any doctor can sign for someone who just wants to get high. Uh, I happen to be 
in California a few years ago near one of those clinics, and you see a lot of young, healthy-looking people going there, not people who look uh, ill. Uh, but I'm talking about things like the Georgia legislature was supposed to pass and failed to, the uh, cannabis oil to help patients, especially young children, with intractable severe seizures, things like that I'm fine with. But to decriminalize and legalize use of this substance uh, to make it more acceptable, more commonplace, I have to say I'm not in favor of. Uh, so we'll have to see what happens as more and more states pass these laws. Uh, we'll have to see. They're a laboratory for finding out what the negative consequences will eventually be. All right, we're going to take a commercial break right here. We'll be back, back with more on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott after the break. This is Denise Simon. 18 hours a day, I live in a world as an intelligence analyst. What I find is reprehensible, what I find is terrifying, what I find is treasonous. The mainstream media has completely failed the American people. So join me for the Denise Simon Experience every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the latest mental health-related news. And on tonight's show, we are now going to have a military mental health update. Soldiers at high suicide risk can be identified with a mathematical model. Now, this is going to sound a little bit strange, but we'll examine what they're talking about. We'll see how useful this could actually be and uh, talk about whether this could be useful for predicting suicide in the civilian population. But a new study suggests that it may be possible to identify which Army soldiers are at high risk for suicide by using a new mathematical model. Researchers analyzed information from more than 53,000 Army soldiers who were hospitalized for a psychiatric condition between 2004 and 2009. 
It's known that people who are admitted to hospitals with a psychiatric diagnosis are at increased risk for suicide after they are released. But even among this high-risk group, suicide is relatively uncommon. And so it would not be practical for everyone released from a psychiatric hospitalization to undergo an intensive suicide prevention program. It would be more feasible to target intensive programs to those most at risk for suicide. So in this new study, 68 soldiers died by suicide within a year of being released from the hospital. That translates to a rate of 264 suicides per 100,000 hospitalized soldiers per year, compared to a much, much smaller rate of 18.5 suicides per 100,000 soldiers per year among all U.S. Army soldiers. That rate, in turn, is higher than the civilian population. Now, the researchers fed information from Army and Department of Defense administrative files into a computer program to look for factors that predicted suicide risk. Previous research has shown that computer algorithms are much more accurate at predicting a person's suicide risk than are doctors. A pretty sad revelation. Well, it's because unlike a person, a computer model can consider hundreds of potential risk factors at once. The researchers program looked at 131 variables linked with suicide risk, from basic factors such as gender and age to details such as whether the person had access to a firearm, was previously treated for a psychiatric illness, or currently had post-traumatic stress disorder. The study found that the 5% of soldiers who were predicted by their model to have the highest risk of suicide after their hospital discharge accounted for more than half of the suicides in the study. <clears throat> the high concentration of suicide risk in the 5% of highest risk hospitalizations was striking. What's more, this 5% was also at high risk for other adverse outcomes following the individual's hospital release, including dying from an unintentional injury, attempting suicide, or being readmitted to the hospital. The strongest predictors of suicide risk included being male, enlisting at, an, at a later age, possessing a registered firearm, attempting suicide in the past, as well as aspects of prior psychiatric treatment, such as the number of antidepressant prescriptions filled in the last 12 months and disorders diagnosed during the hospitalization. The suicide rate among Army soldiers 
has been on the rise since 2004. Although interventions in this high-risk population would not solve the entire U.S. Army suicide problem, given that post-hospitalization suicides account for only 12% of all U.S. Army suicides, the algorithm would presumably help target preventative interventions. Now, the study was published in the November 12 issue of the journal JAMA Psychiatry, or Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. But further research is needed before doctors could use this model. For instance, because the model was based on information from only 68 suicides, further testing will be required using more recent data to confirm how well the model predicts suicide risk. Researchers also need to consider the potential for harm from the model because undergoing an intensive suicide prevention program might lead to undue scrutiny that could affect a soldier's career. Now, right there, that strikes right at the heart of one of the key issues in mental health treatment for those in the armed services. There is such a stigma against admitting to mental health problems and getting help for them because they think that doing so will lower their esteem in the eyes of their fellow soldiers, those who are their commanding officers, those under their command, as the case may be. And that's why uh, there's a stigma against getting help, admitting that there's a problem. <clears throat> and then let's also look at the fact that this is such a narrow, high-risk group. And the article on the study acknowledges that. Uh, they're only looking at the group of soldiers who were hospitalized for psychiatric illness. What about the suicide rates in those who were not hospitalized? And uh, how do we get those down? So apparently the algorithm may help. For the time being, it is only helping with those who have been hospitalized. Uh, even that is of benefit, however, uh, but more needs to be done about the suicides among those who were not hospitalized, given the drastic increase in suicide rates in the armed services over the last, say, seven years or so. And finally, I definitely think that if this model could be proven to be successful, then I don't see why it couldn't also be applied to the civilian population. And again, you would just start with those who had been in a psychiatric hospital and <clears throat> monitor the specific risk factors that are well known to increase the risk of suicide and uh, that certainly uh, would be important work to reduce the incidence of suicide in the civilian population among those who have been hospitalized for mental illness. And the issue of suicide in general in the population at large brings me to this next article that I found. 
And if you have ever had someone close to you talk about suicide or that's going on in your life right now, then you want to hear this. Uh, because this is an article I found that's the, it says it's nine things to do or say when a loved one talks about taking their life. Uh, when people run into this type of situation, very often they don't know what to do. And unintentionally, they could wind up doing or saying the wrong thing in their effort to help. So I thought it would be very important and very useful to bring you uh, this article, uh, again, to give you some pointers on what to do or say when someone is expressing thoughts like that. Uh, even before I get to what the article has to say, I think one very important overriding principle is immediately to dispel the myth that asking someone who's very depressed and hopeless about suicide will make it more likely that they will uh, try to commit suicide. Nothing could be further from the truth. The opposite is true. When someone is asked that question, they are relieved to talk about it and therefore less likely to commit suicide. All right, well, let's get into what the article talks about. First is to take people seriously and let them know that you care. When someone tells you that she or he has thought of suicide, it's scary, of course. Or when a friend confides she's an attempt survivor, you may not know how to react. At times, that could mean coping with a person in crisis, but often it's more about listening, encouraging she or he to get help, and supporting their long-term efforts to stay safe. Now, here's how to be there for a family member or a friend. First is know when it's an emergency. Call 911 in an immediate emergency when somebody is about to hurt themselves or someone else. Or, if possible, get him or her to a hospital emergency room, urgent care center, or walk-in clinic. You can also call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Line is 1-800-273-8255. They can help you figure out what to do. All right, well, we're going to take uh, another commercial break at this point. When we come back, we'll finish up uh, these tips of what to do or say when someone close to you is talking about taking your life and we'll have that and other mental health related news on the other side of this break you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power america on butterflies rainbows and pixie dust i'm marita noon get the truth about energy on my show america's voice for energy only on america's web radio this is dr george from peachtree ear nose and throat center 
We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peace Tree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health related news. We're talking about important things to do or say when a loved one is talking about taking their life. Show compassion. It takes courage for someone to reveal that they've considered suicide or survived a past attempt. When you're the person they trust with this information, how do you respond? Show them you care about them. That's the most important thing. Just as you would with any other secret, such as a possible job change or relationship issue, listen with compassion and without judgment. Staying connected is key. Encourage them to get help. Encourage help-seeking behaviors as opposed to the absolute wrong thing to do, which would be to criticize and be judgmental. How can you feel that way? You have a great life. You shouldn't do that. Uh, what's wrong with you that you would think of taking your life? How can you do that? How can you do that to your family, kids, etc.? This sort of criticism or judgmental things is going to do harm, not help. The person is opened up to you instead of being judgmental or critical. Support them, encourage them to get help, and offer to help in any way you can as well. Another tip is talk to someone who's struggling, right? Oftentimes, people are very anxious and upset to hear that someone is thinking that way and they're not sure of what to say or how to talk to them, so they maybe avoid it. And that's the last thing that person needs is to be further isolated from those they're close to. So if a person you know appears to be struggling with depression or anxiety, don't assume someone else will reach out. Ask if you can talk in private. Ask questions to open up the conversation, such as, 
You haven't seemed like yourself lately. Is everything okay? Listen to their story and express care. Ask if they've thought about hurting themselves or ending their life, and encourage them to seek mental health services. Now, so far we've been talking about what to do, and only briefly mentioned what not to do. Here's more on what not to say. When someone confides their in emotional pain, avoid these responses: minimizing their feelings, offering advice to fix it, debating about the value of life, and offering cliches. When someone is reaching out to you in intense pain, telling them they'll just be fine is not helpful. And don't debate or bargain or say, "I think it'll be better. Let's just wait." Think of acute emotional pain as you would physical pain, similar to someone doubled over with a kidney stone. Next week is a long time away. When someone's struggling with thoughts of suicide, it is unhelpful to ask, "Well, how is this going to affect everyone else in your life?" At that moment, he or she is feeling like such a tremendous burden on everyone else in their life. They're tired of everybody else having to worry. Also, listen to unspoken messages. People have different ways of letting others know there's a problem. Most people talk about suicide directly or indirectly. Within the weeks and months before they take their lives, though not necessarily at the moment at which they are about to act, talk of killing themselves, having no reason to live, being a burden to others, feeling trapped, or having unbearable pain, all mean that a person is at higher risk for a suicide attempt. Indirect statements could be, "I don't care if I die," or "I wish I wouldn't wake up." Most people who talk about suicide do not kill themselves, but talking about suicide and death are signs of emotional distress. Asking about suicide will not put ideas in someone's head or make them suicidal. Instead, asking. Will most likely provide relief. Help people find help. Mental health treatment is essential to help people deal with their problems and feel better. Encourage the person to seek services, and help him or her locate a mental health professional. Psychiatrists, psychologists, psychiatric nurses, and counselors. With specialized training, are good sources of treatment. Campus health or counseling centers can provide therapy for students, and school guidance counselors can point students and families to resources. And then be aware of risk factors. Certain mental health conditions increase the risk. That a person might try to take his or her own life. These conditions include depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, 
and types of personality and anxiety disorders. Substance abuse disorders also increase the risk. Getting and sticking to treatment for these conditions helps to reduce risk. Other risk factors include previous suicide attempts, family history of suicide attempts, serious and chronic health conditions, and prolonged stress. The more risk factors a person has, the higher the risk. Having access to lethal means, such as firearms and drugs, is in and of itself a risk factor. If people have a plan for suicide, ask them what they intend to do. Work with them to limit access to deadly means. This is standard suicide prevention and uh, doctors need to be free to be able to ask questions like, are there firearms in the home and who has access to them? And ask a family member or spouse if they can secure the firearms and get them out of reach of the person who's having thoughts of suicide. It's not about curtailing someone's Second Amendment rights. It's about maintaining their safety. Watch for warning signs. Things people say, their behavior and mood, can all serve as warning signs of suicide. The more of these signs someone has, the greater the person's risk. Certain behavior changes, especially when connected to a painful event, loss, or change, are cause for concern. These include increased alcohol and drug use, searching online for materials or means to kill themselves, acting recklessly, being aggressive, withdrawing from activities, isolating themselves, sleeping too much or too little, calling or visiting to say goodbye, and giving away prized possessions. Moods tied to suicidal thoughts include depression, loss of interest, rage, irritability, and anxiety. Create a safety plan. If you're worried about someone, help or encourage him or her to fill out a patient safety plan, such as the model plan on the Suicide Prevention Resource Center website. Action steps include listening or sorry, listing personal warning signs, such as specific thoughts or moods that a crisis might be brewing, along with coping strategies, distractions, and professionals to contact in a crisis. Safety plans also include listing three people to call for help. As a friend, you would want to be one of those three people. So there you have it, some important tips on what you do when someone close to you is expressing thoughts of no longer wanting to go on in life. Uh, basically, to sum it all up, the general approach is to listen supportively and non-judgmentally, to 
encourage and assist that person to get professional help and also uh, to be aware of what the warning signs and risk factors are, watch for them and help uh, your friend or loved one create a safety plan. Right, well, next up on psychiatry today, we're going to be talking about a children's mental health update, uh, but ultimately this will also be important in evaluating adult mental health problems, especially depression, uh, because it turns out that depression and overwhelming guilt that occurs in the preschool years has been found to be linked to brain changes. In school-aged children previously diagnosed with depression at, as preschoolers, yes, that's right, folks, depression can be diagnosed at uh, that early an age. A key brain region involved in emotion is smaller in these kids than in their peers who were not depressed. The research was done by a team at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. It also suggests that the size of the brain's right anterior insula may predict the risk of future bouts of depression, potentially giving researchers an anatomical marker to identify those at high risk for recurrence. So again, these were kids who just had an MRI done, and uh, it's the it's the right anterior insula, a structure in the brain found to be associated with recurrence of depression in the future. The study was published online in the November 12 issue of the journal, Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. All right, well, what we're going to do is take our next commercial break and come back and explain how the study was done and go into more detail on the findings. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs.com 
fourpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org, and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news. We're talking about how a study in children could identify, even as far back as the preschool years, uh, those who may be at risk for recurring depression later in life. Now, the part of the brain that they were studying with these MRI scans is called the insula. There's one insula on each side of the brain, left and right. And these areas are thought to be involved in emotion, perception, self-awareness, and cognitive function. The insula is also smaller in depressed adults compared with those of their peers who are not depressed. By using MRI scans and focusing on brain anatomy, the researchers hope to find clues to better diagnose and treat depression and to identify individuals at higher risk for recurrent episodes. As part of the study, the investigators also found the same brain structure is smaller in kids diagnosed with pathological guilt during their preschool years, providing evidence that excessive guilt is a symptom of depression related to the size of the insula. That's not a complete surprise because for many years now, excessive guilt has consistently been a predictor of depression and a major outcome related to being depressed. Pathological guilt can be a symptom of clinical depression as well as other psychiatric disorders including anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and bipolar disorder. It's relatively easy to spot the problem in children because they excessively blame themselves for things they've done and haven't done. A child with pathological guilt can walk into a room and see a broken lamp, for example, and even if the child didn't break it, he or she will start apologizing. Even after being told he or she is not at fault, the child will continue to apologize and feel bad. The million-dollar question is whether depressed children become more prone to guilt, or is it that guilt-prone children are more likely to become depressed? Either way, the discovery that pathological guilt is related to changes in the brain that increase the risk for recurrent depression could be a major step in better understanding the trajectory of depression. The researchers followed a group of children in the preschool depression study. Children were assessed for depression and guilt each year from ages 3 through 6. There were 47 diagnosed with depression as preschoolers and 82 who had not been depressed. Some 55% of those with depression 
had displayed pathological guilt as preschoolers, while 20% of the non-depressed group had excessive guilt. All of the children <clears throat> also had MRI brain scans about every 18 months from ages 7 through 13. The researchers found that children with a smaller insula in the right hemisphere of the brain, related either to depression or excessive guilt, were more likely to have recurrent episodes of clinical depression as they got older. The findings would suggest that depression may predict changes in the brain and that these brain changes predict risk for recurrence of depression in the future. And if this sort of information could be used to predict recurrence of depression in the future, that would be huge. Because right now, whether you're talking about adults or children, we don't have a way of predicting who will suffer a recurrence or not after a person's first lifetime episode of depression. We know statistically, after one episode of depression in your lifetime, you've got a 50% chance of having a second. If you have a second, you now have about 75 to 80% chance of having a third. And if you have three, you've got a 90% chance of having a fourth episode. <clears throat> but as far as taking an individual patient and being able to do something to figure out their individual risk, uh, as of yet, there's nothing. So this MRI being, you know, admittedly expensive, but at least non-invasive test, uh, if that could look at someone's insula and say, well, your insula is small, especially on the right, you're more prone to recurrence, then that's going to make a stronger argument to keep that person in treatment, whether it's therapy or medication or both, to prevent further recurring episodes because we know from this imaging study that they're going to be at greater risk. The research suggests that the excessive guilt and depression may put preschoolers on a developmental trajectory that contributes to problems with depression later in childhood and even throughout life. Some children experience depression, recover, and never have another episode, similar to in adults. But others experience a chronic and relapsing course, meaning the depression is long-lasting, it occurs over and over again throughout their life. It is important to identify those who are at risk for chronic and relapsing depression. A previous study from the same group found that children diagnosed with depression as preschoolers were two and a half times more likely to be clinically depressed in elementary and middle school than kids who were not depressed in preschool. The research team would like to continue the study for at least five more years. During that time frame, study subjects will pass through the high-risk period of adolescence. 
on the immediate horizon is a look at the effects of some things that become more common during adolescent years as kids hit a high-risk time for substance and alcohol abuse and other problems that often coexist with clinical depression to see how those sorts of issues affect these children that they've been following since preschool. Now, next on tonight's show, a radical new idea is being proposed by one scientist. Could depression actually be a form of infectious disease? Now, that sounds pretty bizarre and out there, but when you consider that until fairly recently, ulcers were thought to be due to excess stress or stomach acid or things like that, and when initially proposed that gastric ulcers were due to a bacterial infection, that scientist was laughed at, made fun of, thought to be a complete crackpot, and lo and behold, eventually, he was vindicated. And now the hallmark of treatment for gastric ulcers is antibiotics and other treatments to fight the bacterium Helicobacter pylori. So while initially it may seem bizarre to think of depression as a result of an infectious disease, um, you know, there's now so much more known about the microbiome, that is the bacteria that normally inhabit our body and our skin, and how gut microbes may be involved in things like food cravings, uh, very recent research showing that increased cravings for sugar may be due to the type of gut bacteria a person has. So really, it's not as far-fetched as it might seem that depression could be caused by some sort of infectious agent. Now, it, the, the scientist's name is Turhan Kanli, Associate Professor of Psychology and Radiology, a PhD in Stony Brook University. In a paper published in Biology of Mood and Anxiety Disorders, Dr. Canley suggests that major depression may result from parasitic, bacterial, or viral infection. He presents examples that illustrate possible pathways by which these microorganisms could contribute to major depression. Dr. Canley says that further research should conduct a concerted effort in search of parasites, bacteria, or viruses that may play a causal role in major depression. In his paper, he presents three arguments why conceptualizing major depression as an infectious disease may be a fruitful endeavor. First, he points out that patients with major depression exhibit illness behavior such as loss of energy and that inflammatory biomarkers in major depression also suggest an illness-related origin. In other words, illnesses appearing similar to someone who is suffering from an infectious disease. Second, he describes evidence that parasites, bacteria, and viruses that infect humans in a way that alters their emotional behavior. And the article about his paper doesn't go into details, but there are examples of this that are known. Thirdly, Dr. Canley brings the notion of the human body as an ecosystem for microorganisms 
and the role of genetics. Based on these points, Dr. Canley suggests a major research step would be to conduct large-scale studies with depressed patients, controls to compare them to, and infectious disease-related protocols to determine the association or causal nature of infectious disease and depression. Well, stay tuned as there's more work done on this concept. Uh, Again, sounds far-fetched, but you never know. This might revolutionize the treatment of depression if more were found. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. We're going to take a break from the show next week, the week of Thanksgiving, to give those at America's Web Radio uh, a break as well. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Remember not to overindulge too much in food or drink. Uh, Don't feel obligated to go places or do things that make you unhappy, and that will keep down your stress. But otherwise, if you are too stressed out, then you might need to call Dr. Scott. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Good night. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.